great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing founder Maurice Jung, once again representing Taiwan at the APEC Summit, this time in Thailand some of the latest election news and this week it covers talk of semiconductors and one mayoral campaign appearing to have gone from bad to worse. Calls for support for the referendum on lowering the voting age amid concerns it could fail to pass and passenger altercations being the main cause of most MRT disputes in the capital. But we'll begin with the government on Tuesday thanking US President Joe Biden for reiterating Washington's commitment to Taiwan in a meeting with China's Xi Jinping ahead of the G20 summit in Bali. The presidential office expects gratitude to Biden for reaffirming the support for Taiwan and its opposition to unilateral efforts to change the status quo or undermine peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, with a spokesperson saying that Biden's comments show that a peaceful and stable Taiwan Strait is a shared expectation within the international community. Now, a State Department readout on Monday said the meeting with Biden and Xi, during which the US president laid out in detail America's one-China policy has not changed, the US opposes any unilateral changes to the status quo by either side, and the world has an interest in the maintenance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Now, according to the US State Department, Biden raised US objections to China's coercive and increasingly aggressive actions toward Taiwan, which undermine peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait region and in the broader Asia area, and also jeopardise economic practices. And he also said that Washington does not sense that Beijing intends to attack Taiwan in the near future. And a readout from China's foreign ministry said that Xi Jinping reiterated China's position on Taiwan's importance to Beijing, saying the Taiwan question is at the very core of China's core interests and the first red line that must not be crossed in China-US relations. So, Ross, I mean, all pretty predictable there, no biggies, but do you think anyone actually thought anything sort of big, so to speak, was going to come out of that little meeting? You kind of covered it with your excellent summary, right? Are we going to go home now? We're going to home. We won't home now. Home well, time. well, you, know, you you gave us the the background, which was putting me to sleep, and it's not your fault. But you know, the whole uh, why Jiaobu, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, says thank you for what Biden said about uh, you know, peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. You know, it's all stuff we've heard before. Uh, and uh, it was predictable, right? We do, whether it's by telephone or video or in person, when, when Xi Jinping and uh, Joe Biden meet, or if there were two different leaders of China in the United States meeting, they, each side would state its position on, on Taiwan or any number of other issues. It's not like uh, Xi Jinping would hear what Joe Biden has to say on this topic and say, uh, Joe, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm going to stop those military exercises. You know what? Today's the day I'm going to let Taiwan uh, be independent. So yeah, it was great to see you here in Bali and uh, I wish the Taiwanese people well. So obviously that that wasn't going to happen. So it's very predictable. Uh, uh, one should focus on or find something different, but it's really difficult. Uh, some commentators here in Taiwan 
did note the the uh, emphasis, maybe for lack of a better word, in what President Biden said on uh, either side. So no change to the status quo, no unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. Even if someone wants to say that that, that is 99.9% directed at China, it is still in part directed at Taiwan. So we, we have to be realistic and, and not deny that. So I, I'm actually surprised at the eff- effusive thank you from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs because Biden did in part uh, give a warning to Taiwan, and that's not just to, to the current administration, uh, government of President Tsai Ing-wen, but, but the next president uh, as well. And uh, uh, let's be realistic, the uh, leading candidate for the DPP in January 2024 presidential election as of this moment is Vice President Lai. And uh, he, he's described himself as, uh, you know, there's weird ways to translate it into English, but basically uh, I'm a pro-independence worker is you know, loosely what he said so famously a couple of years ago. Uh, so it's it's as much a, a warning to the current president as, as a future president, but we, we have to be realistic and look at what uh, the president, uh, President Biden said. Uh, so there was that, that aspect, which uh, I think is worth noting. Possibly one of the reasons the praise was so grandiose or however Ross described it was because Biden has now on multiple occasions stated very bluntly that the United States would come to the defense of Taiwan, although the State Department then walks that back off in a little bit. But uh, it's been much more explicit under Biden than under uh, other presidents that I'm aware of. But speaking of predictability, um, I'm a little concerned with some of the statements that Biden has made about how he knows Xi Jinping and he's met him many times and he has a, a sense of the man. I'm worried that we're moving into that George W. Bush nonsense of uh, I looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul or whatever he said back then. The only thing really that you should take away from meeting Xi Jinping many times or a few times is that you really have no idea what this person is thinking and you don't understand China at all. I mean, I just finished listening to a podcast by The Economist called The Prince where they go over the rise of Xi Jinping and the thing you walk away with is just question marks. There's just so many things that we don't know, don't understand. So the last president, Hu Jintao, was much more readable. He was, uh, I think, uh, recognized or widely seen by many as sort of weak, and his main thing was the economy, the economy, but, you know, relatively tame otherwise. But she is back to really a good old-fashioned dictator. His thing is order and control. I mean... Hong Kong's uh, crackdown perhaps was uh, predicted by some people, but I mean, who thought they would arrest like a 90-year-old Catholic cardinal? And then you look at the lockdowns in China, it's affecting the economy, and you would think that that would be something that she would want to avoid, but no, he's sticking to it. So, um, yeah, I'm concerned that uh, perhaps she is being underestimated by Biden. Something else I'm noticing is for the past, I don't know, decade-plus, The U.S. has used its laws, such as the Taiwan Relations Act and other things, as sort of a uh, just a a way of saying, well, you know, it's it's our law. So China would bring something up, and then a spokesperson for the Pentagon or for the State Department would say something like, oh, we are committed under the. But now China is firing back with pretty much the same thing, but it's Chinese law, 
And I think we're going to see this continue and get even stronger. So the anti-secession law was passed uh, actually under Hu Jintao, I think, in 2005. And it's, it's very clear. It's directed at Taiwan. And as it goes forward, uh, Xi is probably going to reference that and other laws more, more uh, straightforwardly. He is getting more straightforward and more direct in general. If you'll notice, there's fewer niceties, there's more lectures, there's more visible impatience and frustration. Basically, if you want to read into it, he's thinking in his mind, I don't have to take this anymore. Also, the translations of what he's saying to world leaders are getting better, at least when I hear the Chinese and then I hear the, the English translation, getting better in the sense of the tone that she is trying to convey is being better conveyed. So that I don't think is a coincidence. If you want an example, you can go listen to the dressing down he gave Justin Trudeau about leaking uh, materials during the conversation. And the, you know before, perhaps if the translator would say something like, yeah, we suggest that perhaps you maybe consider, and this time it's just straight up, you can't do this, da 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 So I see a emboldened China, an emboldened Xi, who has a very strong lock on power right now, and he is unpredictable. We do not know him at all. Uh, unless President Biden said to Xi Jinping the, that the U.S. is going to come to Taiwan's aid in the event of a Chinese military action... Uh, I, I think it's bordering on irrelevant. The the, the previous times he said it, uh, not not just because the White House or the State Department uh, walked it back, as we like to say in American English, uh, but uh, we we just don't know if he's serious. If he's serious, he would have said it uh, directly to Xi Jinping. So if Xi Jinping uh, is serious about what what his views are or the positions of the Chinese government, whether that's with regard to Taiwan or uh, with regard to leaks, as he uh, told uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, which I, I thought was kind of cool, actually. Uh, uh, as much as we don't like Xi Jinping, I thought it was a, a moment of of uh, a normalcy. Like he's just like, "Hey, dude, this isn't cool." I expect yeah. I expect our right, yeah. uh, I expect what we we discussed to, to you know follow protocol, and, and and you could see from the look on Trudeau's face, it wasn't that Trudeau, in my opinion, I, I know people disagree, but. It wasn't like uh, Trudeau was shocked. Again, it's my my reading, and I'm not an expert in uh, face reading, but uh, it wasn't that he was shocked that Xi Jinping said this. Uh, to me, it came across more as he knew Xi Jinping was right, that people at, at Trudeau's team were, were, were blabbering to the media what was discussed behind closed doors, and uh, Xi Jinping's team simply doesn't do that because that's not how the government and the media work over there in China. Uh, so he, he looks like, ah, oh, you got me. I, uh, he, and all he could come up with is, uh, well, you know, we have different views on, on you know, fundamental issues like human rights and stuff. Uh, it was kind of like a, a, a stock answer that Trudeau would have given to, to reporters who asked about Canada-China uh, relations. But anyway, uh, I just don't think that this particular meeting was was a big deal. A lot of people said Biden shouldn't have even done it. Uh, the, the, the timing is wrong. There's, there's too many issues. There's too many uh, uh, concerns for, with, with China's behavior across the range of issues in the bilateral relationship, whether that's trade, Taiwan, human rights, et cetera. 
uh, then there's an argument that you should still talk. Uh, uh, but but if you talk, then there needs to be some kind of takeaway. And again, I, I don't think there was any real real takeaways here. The the climate change uh, re- resumption of climate change dialogue that was kind of like you know the most minimal outcome that the two sides could agree to. And a lot of people had predicted before uh, the meeting that they they would announce that or maybe one of the other items that uh, uh, China froze after Pelosi's visit, like counter-narcotics or uh, repatriation of, of uh, uh, illegal immigrants in the United States to China, things like that. Uh, so they chose one. And again, it was kind of like the minimal thing we could do. Uh, and I don't really see anything positive uh, for Taiwan. You could say nothing negative, uh, but again, uh, you know, it's, it, Xi Jinping didn't say, yeah, Joe, you're right on, on Taiwan. Sorry, we'll stop doing that. Uh, and yet the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is is uh, you know, thanking the United States. Maybe they did have a takeout. Maybe that's a nice Indonesian fried rice as a takeout. Uh, you mean a takeaway? Takeaway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I didn't see the menu for, for what they ate, if they ate anything in, in the meeting. I, I, I don't think it was a, a big sit-down meal. Uh it's it's a fair point, uh, uh, Gavin, simply because Biden has emphasized how, how well he knows Xi Jinping, as as we discussed earlier. Uh, I think that's a bit old, you know, to keep to keep emphasizing it. I'll I'll take a, I'll take a partisan or a hit at at Team Biden for that because that that is their habit, and unfortunate in my opinion that uh, and the Obama team. The foreign policy, national security team, they did the same thing. And it's a lot of the same people who, who worked on the team in the Obama administration and are now back in the Biden administration. They'll, they'll emphasize how many times we met with person X, whoever it is, in this case, Xi Jinping, how many bilateral or multilateral meetings we've had with whether that's the EU or China, you know, the UN whatever it is, as if that's some kind of end all to be on. I get it because they'll say like like earlier George W. Bush or more recently Donald Trump was, you know, the unilateral cowboy and didn't care about multilateral forums and alienated all the old U.S. friends and tried to make friends with a few countries that that, that just saw the world the same way as, as President Trump or Secretary of State Pompeo. Uh, but but it, it like I said, it gets old after a while. Like, how many times are you going to tell us that President Biden, when he was a vice president or a senator, met Xi Jinping? Uh, you know, it, it it doesn't change anything in the in the bilateral relationship at all to keep telling us that. And moving on now, and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing founder Morris Zhang arrived in Thailand on Thursday to attend the APEC Economic Leaders Meeting as President Tsai Ing-wen's representative to the event. Now, Zhang and his wife were greeted at the airport in Bangkok by Thailand's top trade representative. And speaking at Taoyuan International Airport prior to his departure, Zhang said he looks forward to exchanging ideas about various issues with other APEC leaders in Bangkok, and he will make his best endeavours to fulfil the tasks that Tsai has assigned him. 
Now, China's Xi Jinping and the US Vice President Kamala Harris are both attending the summit there. However, it remains unclear whether Jiang will have any bilateral meetings with other countries' leaders or representatives on the sidelines of the event. Now, it's the sixth time that Jiang has served as Taiwan's APEC envoy, five times previously under the Tsai administration and once under former President Chen Shui-bian. Now, Jiang's attendance this year is getting far more play in the international media than in previous years, as it comes, of course, amid US-China tensions over technology and security and also global concerns about semiconductors and supply chains, Michael. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, I would note that he's 91 years old. So he seems to be still uh, have uh, quite a bit of stamina. He seems to be in uh, good health, but 91 is 91. And I'm looking forward uh, down the road to who might be a replacement for a person like this for summits like APEC and stuff. Because Morris Jung is really a unique individual born in China, but then spent much of his education years in Hong Kong. When the ROC fled to Taiwan, he went back to Hong Kong and spent so many years in America. He only came back to Taiwan, I think, in the the mid or late uh, 1980s. So this is like a perfect candidate for everybody involved between uh, Taiwan and, and China for uh, a liaison person. And, uh, yeah, he's perfect. But uh, should, as Ross pointed out, uh, the front runner of 2024, Lai Qingde, actually become president, um, I'm just uh, considering who or if there are people like this going forward. There, there's always someone, of course. But, uh, yeah, he's at this moment he's pretty irreplaceable for these kind of things. Uh, I, I, I'm going to say that this is very akin to the Xi Jinping-Joe Biden meeting uh, we shouldn't really have much expectations. You know, the, each side will say what it wants. Uh, when when Morris Zhang or whoever it is 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 representing Taiwan at APEC, and we've seen this, uh, we have you know, over over twenty or nearly thirty of these APEC leader uh, member economy, uh, as they like to call them, leader meetings, and uh, whoever is representing Chinese Taipei. Uh, you know, comes with some talking points that that the presidential office and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Economic Affairs has provided. Uh, he's going to say, "I'm the guy from Taiwan or Chinese Taipei, and uh, we we'd love to be your friend, and please be our friend, and we hope to trade more with you." I mean, he's not going to have a detailed discussion about semiconductor processes with uh, you know, the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, um, who's one of the attendees at the APEC meeting. Typically. Uh, there are some fixed meetings, so I think we'll we'll see uh, the fixed one-on-one -on -one meetings. Uh, usually, there's a meeting with the Prime Minister of Singapore, for example, because historically they've had had, had a, uh, this kind of relationship, uh, government to government, with Taiwan. Notwithstanding, they often uh, publicly criticize uh, the the DPP. Um, they the, the, the there's typically the the photo op or the or the the meeting with the U.S. Uh, president or vice president as well. So there's plenty of precedent, and it'll happen again. But uh, whether it's ten minutes or thirty minutes, how much could could they say? And 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 the U.S. government, uh, if they even issue a statement about Morris Jong meeting Vice President Harris. They would have already written this statement, as, and it's going to you know, be a bunch of stuff about how important supply chain resiliency is and how nice it was to, to see Morris Strong again. Uh, yeah, but Ross, don't you think there's going to be conversations that are not on the record and are completely uh, just <laughs> between 
closed doors that we never hear about. And a person like Morris Jong, it would be able to deliver messages to other people on the other side in a in a unique way. Absolutely not. Morris Jong is totally not in a position to do that. The best he could do is repeat the talking points that he was provided about, we'd love to do more trade with you. So, uh, for example, in accordance with the new southbound policy, if he sees, if he gets a few minutes with uh, uh, Vietnam or Malaysia, well, that's going to be a little weird because they're having an election tomorrow, you know, and we, we really don't know who's going to form the next government uh, or Thailand. You know, he's going to say, we hope to trade more with you. Again, he's not going to get into a conversation about the, the, the latest semiconductor chips uh, with, with the prime minister of, of Thailand. Uh, and this is not the forum or, or the time or the place to talk about whether or not TSMC is going to build a new fab in, in Japan or, or expand the, the facility that it's building in Arizona, which has been in the news here, that they might add additional capacity. Uh, he's not there to represent TSMC. Uh, the chip 4 discussions are operating on a separate track, uh, and South Korea has been pretty reluctant on that anyway. But but again, this is not the time or, or the place to, to have those discussions. Uh, uh, I would have extremely low expectations, and, and frankly, Frankly, and uh, with apologies to, to Mr. Jong, he, he's been to Apex several times before, as we discussed. Nothing came of it. You know, he just repeats the talking points, as I said, that he's provided. Uh, nobody leaves an APEC meeting, regardless of who represents Chinese Taipei or earlier, uh, James Song, which I thought was a terrible choice by the Thai administration uh, under the Ma administration, uh, Lian Zhan or, or Vincent Xiaowanchang. Nobody says, wow, Chinese Taipei came to APAC with some wonderful ideas for trade facilitation in the region. We're going to implement what Chinese Taipei said. It never happened. So uh, we should have the most minimal, lowest of expectations for, for this. And that part is not a criticism of Morris Zhang. I think it's just the, the realities of what he can do or anyone representing Taiwan could do at, at APEC. And also uh, the reality of what APEC has become in an era of, of trade tension and when RCEP has, has, is moving along in its implementation. CPTPP uh, is also moving along in its impl implementation. The U.S. is not part of either. Taiwan is still not part of either. Uh, and APEC was never a platform for to become an FTA negotiation anyway. The key word as a, as I mentioned, is is trade facilitation, but but it's become nearly dormant. So uh, we really should have low expectations. Anyway, we have to take a break now, but we shall return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and in some local election news now, some of it semiconductor related. Four DPP candidates in mayoral and magistrate races this week unveiled a joint semiconductor development platform they say is aimed at improving the island's tech sector. Now the platform is being backed by the DPP's Taoyuan mayoral candidate Zhang Yunpeng, its Shinzu City mayoral candidate Sheng Hui Hong, its Shinzu County magistrate candidate Zhou Zhang Jie and its Miaoli County magistrate candidate Xu Ding Jun. And they say the plan will help solve problems with water and electricity 
supplies, which have long impacted the local semiconductor industry, and also it will build a stronger silicon shield for Taiwan. Now, the statement comes, though, amid controversy over claims by the DPP's Taoyuan city mayoral candidate that Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing is, well, going to open a factory using its sophisticated one nanometer process in the city's Long Tan Science Park. Now, TSMC has refused to comment on any of its plans, but the KMT's Taoyuan mayoral candidate and former Premier Simon Jung has been expressing his doubt about the plan and being rather vocal about it, saying it can't happen because there's simply no space for such a facility in the Long Tan Science Park. And of course, Ross, as you noted to me several weeks ago, the DPP's Taoyuan city mayoral candidate commented on semiconductors, Taiwan Semiconductor, several weeks ago, and all of a sudden, advertisements for him popped up with the words Taiwan Semiconductor coming to Taoyuan near you on it. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago when uh, outgoing mayor uh, Zheng Wenchan and uh, mayoral candidate Zheng Yunpeng and Premier Su Junchang went, went to visit the, the, the Long Tan uh, Science Park area, uh, and said TSMC's coming. Then within a few hours, uh, Zheng Yunpeng's social media team ha- had uh, advertisements. Uh, it was popping up on my mobile phone. So obviously they had planned that ahead. Uh, I guess from a political perspective, you got to give them uh, credit. Uh, but no, no deal has has been announced yet. Uh, so the the voters will. We'll probably see through that uh, whether or not uh, Simon Zhangshan uh, Zheng, the Kuomintang candidate, could articulate articulate this in in a, a way that helps him get more votes. Uh, still re- remains to be seen. We'll find out on, on the twenty sixth. Uh, uh, he's he's tried. To, just like any other opposition, because he's the opposition, and, and, and there's an incumbent DPP mayor, Mayor Zhang. Uh, you know, he's trying to say that economic development has been lagging in Talia, and uh, the, the outgoing mayor is pretty popular. The residents uh, seem to like the job he's done over his two terms, and that I think would include, broadly speaking, prosperity issues, uh, economic development in, in the region. Uh, understandably, TSMC doesn't want to get involved. Uh, they want to be friends with with all the politicians, and uh, they want the best deal possible. So maybe in the final days before the election, we'll we'll see the, the all the politicians running for for uh, office to you know saying like I'll give you because know, they're they're doing a lot with like uh, you know child care subsidies and things like that. Maybe they'll also up the ante for what they'll offer uh, a TSMC in the final days uh, before the election. But again, it's TSMC is not going to uh, say like oh we love what what fill in the name of a certain candidate is is offering. Uh, and we should also uh, keep in mind that a lot of this is really within the purview of the central government rather than uh, the local governments. Uh, anything in the you know, tax breaks and stuff like that is going to be mostly for the central government. The, the, I think part of the message from the, the DPP side here is we're a team. So to the extent that uh, right now there's a DPP central government, uh, you in in Taoyuan, the, the residents or investors, potential investors like TSMC, you'd be better off with a unified team of, of a central government and a local government uh, that 
is from the DPP and, and we'll all work together. Uh, in fact, we won't just work together between the central government and Taoyuan City. We'll make a whole cluster with uh, uh, Shinju local elected leaders as well. And uh, so that, that's kind of the message uh, that, that they want voters as well as TSMC to understand. And uh, it, it may or may not work. It's going to this is expected to be quite a close vote. And of course, Michael, you have a mayor who also often talks about Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing. Yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> speaking of the central government, that's exactly, and he hasn't put it uh, very subtly, he's been pretty blunt about it, but that's what Chen Mai has been saying as he stood on platforms for various DPP candidates. He's harped on the fact that TSMC, as well as a couple of other factory uh, semiconductor or various chip manufacturers, are coming to Kaohsiung, and he's more than hinted that it's because Kaohsiung has a good relationship with the central government. And I think there's some danger in this uh, argument because, as his challenger, Kozun from the KMT, is pointed out in the last debate that they had, she was arguing that, okay, well, you bring down a big company like this, that's it's well and good, and it's good for uh, development in general, but how many actual jobs does it create for uh, you know, less less skilled workers or people who don't know too much about computers. So she was arguing that you will need to create uh, for every three tech jobs, you're going to have to create one other uh, low uh, job. I forget exactly what her formula was, but uh, it 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 does raise a point as to whether or not Gaosheng would actually see a reversal in people leaving the city. Um, so, yeah, is semiconductors the cure-all for a city or even a, a region? I think uh, there's, there's some danger to touting that. But for right now, in many people's minds, from what I can tell, it's a sexy topic and it gets their attention and they hear semiconductors and they think money. Uh, although I'm a little concerned that that may not be the case. And in other local election news this week, Taiwan People's Party lawmaker and Shinzu City mayoral candidate Anne Gao's campaign appears to be going from bad to worse. That after the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office on Thursday said it opened an investigation into allegations of embezzlement against her. Now, prosecutors say the investigation was launched after it received several reports that Gao had been taking advantage of her position as a lawmaker to overstate the salaries of her aides while pocketing the excess for her personal use. Now, much of that reporting and claims have been made by Mirror Media, which has said that, well, Gao overstated 600,000 NT in salary payments to her aides from between February and December of 2020, and that she shed up shell accounts, which she allegedly used to receive cash transfers from the central government to pay for what she declared as salary payments for her employees. Now, there's also allegations she used her former assistant and alleged boyfriend, Lee Jong-Ting, as a proxy for receiving what were supposed to be salary payments. Now, she denying the allegations but of course Michael they come after she faced allegations of plagiarism quite early on in her campaign yeah this has been a, a very interesting development to watch so like, we, we've had so many years of financial mismanagement cases that have been brought against politicians I mean even Mying Joe had his day in court over things uh, that he did but this one 
if the allegations can be proved, it's relatively serious. I mean, I have to get Ross's uh, commentary on the legal thing, but it seems a, a little bit more uh, serious than some of these other ones of, uh, oh, you misuse the discretionary budget or something like that. So she was put way high on the list of the TPP's legislator at large uh, candidates by and it said that this was mainly done because of her good relationship with uh, Honghai chairman, um, or Fox Hong chairman, Terry Guo. So there are also lots of talks about Terry Guo teaming up with Coenza on a ticket for president in 2024. Who knows who would be at the top of that ticket? So this, this relationship is what got her there. And today there were reports that originally Co wanted to nominate somebody else that he thought was more in tune with his philosophy and stuff. But he sort of got, uh, got a phone call, I think, from, uh, from Foxconn saying uh, this would be a, a better one. So if it turns out that she ends up failing and uh, she, she was doing very well, as you pointed out, for uh, Shinzu, it, uh, it's going to be a big blow to Ke and the TPP. So I'm sort of watching this race as an indicator of what the future holds for the TPP as a serious alternative to the two major political parties currently. So it was looking uh, earlier that they could end up um, becoming a much stronger force in Taiwan than they had been before. But if she goes down in flames on the 26th, um, yeah, I think the whole calculus is going to have to be reset, and uh, Ko is going to have to do some serious soul-searching. So, Ross, a litmus test for the Taiwan People's Party, and is it on fire? Uh, yeah, that, that was quite dramatic, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I, I'm going to uh, pour some water on this fire and, and say of that... Of course you are. Uh, I, I don't think this has anything to do with the future... Uh, political success or lack thereof of, of the TPP, because uh, the, this is mostly about personalities and, and, and the actions or the behavior or the appropriate uh, or lack of appropriateness of her behavior in the operation of her legislative office. Uh, you know, it's not about philosophy of, of the Taiwan People's Party versus the Kuomintang or the Minjindang, because uh, we kind of don't really know what, what the philosophies of most of these parties are, other than they might have some different opinions on uh, uh, relations with China. But when it comes to domestic issues, it's, it's not really clear if they have a difference of opinion other than uh, telling voters, I'll, I'll spend more money to give you things that, that you want. So all the parties in that regard are similar. I, I don't think that the TPP is much different uh, than the TP, uh, the DPP or the, the Kuomintang in that, in, in that uh, regard. Uh, you know, so, for example, whether or not she wins or if she loses, it, it has no effect on how many uh, political party votes you know, the party list votes the TPP will get in January 2024 uh, in the legislative UN election, or if there's a TPP uh, legislative UN candidate in January 2024 in some constituency in Taipei or Kaohsiung, this is irrelevant. And it's probably irrelevant for TPP city councilor candidates uh, across Taiwan uh, as well. Uh, the, the dollar amounts we're talking about you know, are not large, but if, if she did inappropriately you know, have you know, no-show jobs, you know, that's basically what the allegation against her, her boyfriend is, that he had a no-show job. And, and then some of the money went, went to uh, a donation 
to the to the party headquarters, and there, there's also allegations that uh, uh, some overtime was claimed, and then she used the money for personal expenses. But they're always you know, they wash her hair or something, and but they're always going to say that it was that was a legitimate expense because she had to go to public appearances. Uh, but but I think the the problem for the TPP here is more uh, uh, the candidate vetting issue. And, and they've had a few problems as well with city council candidates that they had nominated who then it turned out they had criminal records or <laughs> stuff like that. So uh, it's just the the lack of experience that, that America and, and his team have in operating a political party. And then this is what you, you'll wind up with. So uh, well, don't you think that possibly you're mis or downplaying the, the effect that something like this can have on down ballots? Because I'm looking at, for example, the, the candidate Lynn, who was, you know, originally going to run for Italian mayor. And when the plagiarism allegations came out and it was proved that indeed it was plagiarism, it had completely shook up the entire race. What was looking like a possible green uh, north changeover is now looking very less likely. So I don't think you can discount the possibility that there are voters who will, even in Kaohsiung, see this on the news and think, eh, and you know, maybe they were planning on maybe giving the TPP a chance at city council or something else, and they go, eh, I'll stick with what we know. And Ross, I mean, do you think do you think they should have been investigating this openly now, or they could have just put it on hold and waited till after the election? Well, if we if we use the the American approach, and this unfortunately has become a matter of, of uh, extraordinary partisanship, starting with 2016 and then again 2020 and 2022. Uh, Speaking as an American lawyer, I, I think it's highly inappropriate for prosecutors to announce days before an election that they've opened an investigation to a political candidate. The appropriate thing to do would be to uh, announce that after the election. Uh, you know, they could start gathering the evidence now, but uh, to announce it before the election, uh, you know, it, it it just comes across as partisanship by by the prosecutors, which of course they would deny and they would say, uh, you know, people came to us with evidence, so we opened an investigation. I, I, I think they could have just waited until uh, November 28th, uh, you know, the Monday following the election. Uh, they could have just said uh, no comment. They could do what, what the Department of Justice in the U.S. tries to do, which is to, to say we, we don't we don't announce that kind of thing within days before an election. And that's been our, our policy for a number of years. I, I think Taiwan would be better off with with uh, that that kind of approach. But unfortunately, it's that's not what happened here. And of course, on election day, voters will also be casting their ballots in a referendum. That referendum being to lower the voting age to 18 and the age of candidacy to 18. Now, when all this kicked off and it was first talked about and the referendum first became a thing, people were saying, yes, it's going to pass easily because everybody agrees with it. Now, the referendum needs at least 9.65 million voters to cast their ballots in favour of it to pass. And that figure represents some 50% of the total number of eligible voters nationwide. However, recently, civic groups and some politicians have been sort of talking about maybe it's not going to pass for some reason or other, Michael. Yeah, so this is very interesting. Um, 
When I heard about the civic groups calling for the age limit uh, for candidacy to be lowered to 18, uh, that one made me go, mm, I'm not quite sure if I would vote for that. I think maybe 18 is a bit young to be running for mayor or whatever else. Uh, Ross, what's the, the age uh, standard in, uh, in the States for holding office? Oh, maturity-wise, now it's it's about eleven years old. Oh, okay, but legally, <laughs> well, uh, uh, for president, it's thirty-five. Right. Yeah, but recall, most, but I, I think most, I, I think most other places don't 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 have these kinds of restrictions. But that's why we sometimes see news about very young. You know, we have our first. Uh, what, what, what generation are we up to, Gavin? I know you stay on top of these things. Are we up to Z? <laughs> I think it's Z at this point. Yeah, you, come but, on, you can't, uh, Michael, you can't help Gavin out. We wanted to him to, we want to give him a chance to show how in touch he is with with social trends. Uh, but we have our first generation Z member of uh, of the House who was just elected in, in the U.S. election. And in the U.S., there's always, uh, around election time, there's always the story about the, the very young person, you know, the, the 20-year-old or the 22-year-old who's elected to, to a city council or, or, or a school board. Uh, uh, so uh, we, we shouldn't uh, necessarily discount uh, the ability of, of, of young of people. Of an 18-year-old. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, currently, the law in Taiwan says you need to be 23 to run for office, which I find, uh, I guess, reasonable, um, considering when I think of uh, how I was at, at 23. But as far as this referendum in general goes, I've been talking to people in the South of uh, all age groups from junior high school up to an 84-year-old man that I see very frequently. Uh, he says no. He says 18-year-olds are not even close to being ready, although uh, I ask him what the real difference is in two years between 18 and 20, and he just says no. So I think there are some old-school people who are definitely not interested in this. And then um, this, this whole thing about all the parties being behind this and unified behind this, okay, you kind of have to say that because if you didn't, let's say, for example, X party said that, you know, their, their policy was against 18-year-olds voting and it passes, well, you know, 18-year-olds aren't going to vote for them next time around, are they? So it's, all, of course, everyone's going to parrot the same line of uh, we should do this. And as I think Ross and I have discussed before on this very topic, uh, the KMT, if this does pass, is likely going to suffer in future elections because, as it stands right now, younger people are almost primarily uh, fixed towards the, the other direction. Uh, that could change, of course, I don't know, but this would be a coup for the DPP. They definitely want this to pass. But as you noted, Gavin, I'm starting to also have my, my doubts as to whether it will. So, Ross, is it sexy enough for politicians and parties to actually get up and say, go vote, yes? Uh, one of the interesting things about what, what Michael just said is with regard to political parties, and they can't come out and say, oh, we're not really enthusiastic about it. They have to say they're enthusiastic about this because they, they're reluctant to alienate young voters because they're always chasing after this this demographic. It's, it's kind of like uh, a politi political parties don't want to say, we 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 fully support the extension of military service to to mm -hmm. one year. Oh, and we want eighteen year olds to do it, and not not get deferments for education. Uh, 
the political parties don't want to come out and say that, uh, including the party that that is the ruling party, right? We, we rarely hear DPP politicians enthusiastically saying we definitely need to extend military service for one year. I mean, they want to. We all know what's going on there, right? They're waiting until after the election to make that announcement because they don't want to. Uh, hand something to the Gomindang where the Gomindang would say uh, the DPP are leading us to war and young people, you shouldn't vote for them. But but that brings up another interesting issue. And I think the parties are all, which the parties are struggling with is we need the we have this turnout barrier uh, to to pass. And uh, if you ask different people at the political parties, you might get a different answer whether having a larger turnout would help their electoral chances uh, keeping in mind it's a local election. So uh, you, you need the turnout nationally to pass the referendum to to revise the Constitution. But uh, it, will, will a broader turnout nationally, which actually specifically means a lot, uh, you know, there was a high turnout in Kaohsiung, where Michael is, or in Taoyuan, which we were talking about earlier, is going to be a close election. Shinju City, we were talking about earlier, is going to be a close election. Does that help or hurt one of the political parties. And again, I think different uh, analysts or, or people within the parties might have a different view on that. Uh, and, and maybe, I'm just, I'm just speculating here, guys, but maybe the DPP hasn't been so enthusiastic about this referendum because they're concerned that a high turnout nationally uh, might be a, a vote against the DPP candidates, you know, just sort of like we saw four years ago in, in the previous local election where the people were frustrated about various policies at the central government level. Uh, so they turned out to vote in the national election and it didn't go well for the DPP. I, I'm just speculating there, guys. And it's, uh, I, I don't know if you have any information on this, but if it doesn't pass this time around, I guess there is the possibility that it could be on the ballot in 2024. Uh, I don't think there's enough time to, to go through the process again. It has to pass through the, the legislative UN. And, and yeah. Uh, if it was during a presidential election, I think no question it would pass definitely. But in these sort of midterms, like you noted, uh, it, it, it gets quite complicated. And also it's going to reopen the debate about when should uh, referendums be. Oh, are we going to treat referendums on the Constitution different from the other referendums? And unfortunately, the political parties, uh, like a lot of issues, they've been on both sides of that issue as well. And then they'll call a referendum to work out when to hold referendum. We do that <laughs> yeah. already. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, they'll repeat it again. Anyway, before we go this week, the Taipei Police Department's Rapid Transit Division has reported that a majority of the cases they're called in to deal with involve altercations between passengers. Now, police say a total of 209 incident reports have been filed on the metro system since the beginning of this year, and 65% of said reports involve people either bumping into each other or stepping on one person's toes in front of them or behind them. Now, 29 of the complaints have led to lawsuits and charges of causing bodily harm. The most common ones cited by the Metro Police include the failure to give up a seat for an elderly person, the blocking of people from exiting carriages or entering carriages, or people simply standing in the way of other people, as well as the failure of a passenger to wear a face mask. Now, some of the disputes have resulted in physical altercations and even the use of pepper spray, Michael. 
Well, uh, I can say that uh, I'm happy to note that we don't have this problem in Kaohsiung, although the reason we don't have that problem could be because the, the use of the subway system is uh, much lower than in Taipei, and we have plenty of seats and plenty of room to, to stand there. So what I see in Taipei is just simple overcrowding in many cases, and uh, some bad planning as well, especially on the, in my opinion, the Nehu or the Brown Line, which years and years ago I was looking at and going, this will never hold up as demand increases, and it seemed to me more like a light rail than a subway. But the incidents that you just mentioned actually were mostly not on the Brown Line. They were on uh, other major lines. I think uh, one of the ones I saw was the Sandal Temple Station, the Blue Line. So, yeah, um, simple overcrowding, and perhaps the only solution is to have one of those transit officers do more patrols on the train walking back and forth, but we already have a pretty easy way of reporting. There's a, a very quick buzzer button, and at the next station there can be something done about it. So I don't really see any further way of, of making this better. I haven't seen any evidence that uh, the number of incidents is disproportionate uh, to the number of, of riders. So uh, I think we should compare this to you know, say other systems around the world and, and see if you know, the, these incidents are uh, occurring with, with more frequency than, than you would normally expect uh, in a system that does carry this number of passengers uh, daily or annually or whatever metric. Uh, should be is appropriate to use, uh, but I, I think the, the the headline number just doesn't seem like a lot of incidents. Yeah, it'll get it'll get media attention, and you know, if people catch it on uh, or they're able to film these incidents on their mobile phone, you know, two people screaming at each other in, in the MRT, then it, it'll it'll quickly be on on the evening news, um, and or, or there's plenty of Facebook pages where people can post this stuff, and it, and it goes viral pretty quickly. But uh, I also think most residents of, of Taipei or New Taipei who frequently use the, the MRT or, or the bus here are pretty happy with the service, uh, even though it could be crowded. Uh, but you know, that's inevitable in a large urban area. Um, but but the, the price is reasonable. The trains generally run on time, to, to use the famous quote. Uh, it, it's very clean. In, you know, they, they've always maintained uh, this enormous, uh, sorry, this, this extraordinary uh, level of cleanliness in, in the stations and uh, on the trains because most people respect the rule not, not to eat inside the system once you cross, cross the barrier uh, to enter. Uh, so it's too bad that that, that some people ought to make the you know, issue out of uh, you know, there is no rampant crime problem uh, on the MRT and incidents are inevitable uh, whether it's just two people having a bad day and they get into an argument uh, or there's a bad actor who's just looking for for trouble uh, and the other thing to to keep in mind uh, and it's a change in, in recent years partly uh, it was it was ongoing before the pandemic began but they, they've added uh, during the pandemic period because of the need to remind people to social distance or, or wear masks is in in nearly every station, at least in the downtown area, um, th there's security, not police, but but there, there's security 
on the platforms to keep an eye on things. And in many stations in the downtown area during rush hour, there's also very nice older folks uh, volunteering uh, who help out with uh, you know, whatever needs passengers might have. So generally, this is a great system. It, it works. Uh, Taiwan or, or Taipei specifically, uh, should, or Kaohsiung as well, and now Taichung should be proud of their mass transit systems. Yes, because of course, Ross, unlike the places we hail from, muggings on the underground or subway are like pretty, it's, pretty, pretty, pretty rare. Yeah, we, we really rarely hear about that kind of stuff here, fortunately. Yeah, the research that I was looking at about uh, successful subway stations around the world, they bring up things like Stockholm, and they say the reason for it being so successful is because they keep it very, very clean, and also because there's uh, a public art or the design of the station makes you... And we have all of that in Taiwan as well, especially in Taipei. It's uh, As Ross noted, it's clean, it's uh, friendly for the most part, so... Yeah, uh, there are always going to be people who are going to get into fights. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.